Hey, I'm Nylon, the Associate Artistic Director of the Drama League in New York City. Welcome to Talking Direction, the behind-the-scenes podcast going deep into the world of theater, film, television, and online content to celebrate directors, those visionary artists at the center of plays, musicals, movies, and TV shows enjoyed around the world. Each week, we welcome acclaimed guests to explore imagination, risk-taking, and craft, as well as looking at the past, present, and future of the creative industries. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you find your podcast. We're available on all platforms or by visiting dramaleague.org. Thanks for listening and for talking direction. Welcome to Talking Direction. I'm Gabriel Stelian Shanks, the artistic director of the Drama League. Natasha Sinha is a producer, dramaturg, and the new Associate Artistic Director of Playwrights Horizons in New York City. But Natasha's commitment to the development of new plays and musicals has given her a hand in many of the seminal stage works of the last decade. Formerly the Director of Artistic Programs at Signature Theater, she developed residencies there for early career playwrights, and she was Artistic Line Producer for Dave Malloy's Octet, Lauren Yee's Cambodian Rock Band, and the lauded revival of Fires in the Mirror by Anna Devere Smith, among many others. Before that, Natasha was Associate Director of LCT3 at Lincoln Center Theater, a home for new work that has produced the Pulitzer Prize-winning Disgraced by Ayad Akhtar, War by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, Antoinette Nwandu's Passover, and Rude Mech's Stop Hitting Yourself, which I should add was a personal favorite of mine. As a dramaturg, she has played an integral role in the development of new works by Michael R. Jackson, Grace McLean, Shakina Nafak, Danny Pudi, Heather Raffo, and many more. She is a co-founder of Beehive Dramaturgy Studio, which works with individual generative artists as well as organizations such as Page 73, Musical Theater Factory, the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program, and the Astoria Performing Arts Center. Natasha is one of three coordinators of Amplifying Activists Together, and was the recipient of the 2019 Lucille Lortel Award from the League of Professional Theater Women. Please welcome Natasha Sinha to Talking Direction. Hi, Natasha. Hi. Thank you for that (laughs) lovely intro. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I feel like I never get to spend enough time with you. (laughs) Appreciate Um, it. Part of the reason I think I feel that beyond the pandemic is that I know you've been settling into this new position at Playwrights Horizons. Mm -hmm. Um, You've been partnering with Adam Greenfield, who himself was recently promoted to artistic director there. And I think when I knew you were going to be on this podcast, the first question that came to my mind is what must it be like navigating a new leadership job during the COVID-19 pandemic? How has it been? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's wild. I'm so grateful for this. I, I've been saying a lot that I am really grateful for this opportunity to dream forward um, with Adam, with Playwrights Horizons. That team is just so full of heart and generosity towards artists, and such you know genuine curiosity for innovation and and real dialogue about about our world and ourselves via theater. And that feels like something that I um, desperately need during this pandemic of not being able to actually produce live theater. Um, so that part of it is just like such a, a gift to be able to be in that space day in and day out um, and really have that as a focus on my mind. Because I know a lot of folks, you know, are, are out of work or aren't able to do any part of 
you know, what they usually do. And that leaves you with sort of a, a black hole of time in some ways for some people. Uh, and I feel like that is how I would have been experiencing it if I didn't have this. So I'm very grateful for that. At the same time, it's just weird, you know, <laughs> like my first day at Playwrights really just meant clicking into a different Zoom screen. And I was like, okay, well, here's my dream. It's it's this Zoom screen, I guess, for now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it is um, such a challenge to for everyone who's trying to pivot in this moment, but to switch positions at such a crucial time seems um, <laughs> is both especially fraught and incredibly comforting to know that mm-hmm. there are people like you in the field who are taking care of our institutions and plotting that return to this moment. Um, Thank you. I know you've, I know I, you've I only appreciate been in this that. role. You're quite welcome. I think it's, I think it's really, um, uh, I don't know. Um, Un, unrecognized labor that is super hard, super complicated, um, and really necessary at this moment. Um, I know you've only been at Playwrights Horizons two months, so you know I'm going <laughs> to avoid all the questions about what you're planning at Playwrights Horizons. But <laughs> I I do think that a lot of people in the field wonder about how plays get put on stages, and you have worked at some of the major New York centers in the American theater. Um, you know, I, the, the critique I often hear is that that process is very opaque and, and not well understood, even by the artists who might eventually be in those productions. Um, and, you know, I'll admit to an extent, I think that's true, that the process could probably use some transparency. But I also know from my own experience in those processes that it's very, very, very complicated. And so as someone who has built a career um, supporting new work and getting work on stages at a variety of places, how are you drawn to the works that you focus on, both you know, in that institutional leadership role you have and as a dramaturg? Yeah, um, well, I'll say, firstly, I, I definitely think transparency is helpful. You know, we're, we're all in this together. And the only time it doesn't feel like that's true is when we aren't transparent. So I, so demystifying a lot of these processes is really important to me, especially in my focus on new work uh, and supporting uh, artists who might be newer to the industry, to the to the mainstream, you know, sort of level of of all of this. Um, so that that's a really important conversation to me. And in terms of uh, how I bring some of this into the theaters I'm at. You know, a lot of the time, it's a combination of what really appeals to me, what feels like it has surprises within it, you know, something embedded that feels really key to how we move around in the world, how we function as humans, how other communities, other being literally anything uh, that isn't my own personally, and my own personally usually isn't the the mainstream community, but how communities exist and what those dynamics are and how we really dig into those. So whenever there's something that's really appealing about that, it sort of sets a, you know, like pings in my mind. And then it's sort of the Venn diagram of that with whatever theater I'm at at the time or whatever project I'm working on, whatever freelance work I'm I'm doing, um, finding the, the confluences there that feel like this is something that I want to support, move forward with. This is something I feel like I have something to offer in terms of development, in terms of 
um, just dialogue about the piece that could send it into the next uh, the next step of it. Um, so I'm trying to I'm trying to find ways to answer your question that um, that feels more specific. But I'm just I, I guess. Hmm. Well, I I think you have answered it. I think mm-hmm. the piece a lot of people in the on the outside of those processes don't realize is that artistic leaders are trying to have a conversation with their community um, and that a season is an ongoing dialogue. And so a lot of the things you lifted of sort of how it creates surprise, how it creates interest um, mixed with the Venn diagram of that institution's specific conversation, um, you know, that, that feels like an answer to me. I guess I would say it feels like the right answer to me in some way. Um, I feel like I'll, it... I'll also add that, you know, um, I think reminding uh, the world that everything is really a prism and like our positionality to a story changes its meaning. There's lots of ways of looking at something like there's something about that that feels really key to theater itself and what theater can do. So for me, when I find when I can identify something of that, in a piece that is really interesting to me. And then it's about connecting the dots of like, is this theater the right one to push this forward? Is this a theater the right one to, to support with the resources we have, with the strengths of this theater? And also acknowledging, you know, any weaknesses that might be there that may not serve what this piece is or the artists who have created it and who are in the process of creating it. So for me, it's very much about this idea of theater being a landscape. It's not just like there's one perfect theater, uh, even like within New York City off Broadway, if that's what we're talking about. Um, it's really a, it's really a, a symbiosis among a lot of different creatures that happen to be theaters or organizations or artists or whatever. And I think the best way for me to think about all of it is to think about the relationships among all of those, and then within all of that, lifting up the projects that I know that I can support. Uh, in the way that it needs and in the way that I know that that particular organization or or person or whatever can best do. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And it and it it's important to recognize that um, not only is the play um, a beautiful, perfect thing, but it has to find its correct environment to thrive in. Um, you know, when I think about, you know, I don't know, Soho Rep, there is a, Mm -hmm. there is a character to their work. Mm -hmm. There is a, there is a spirit to that work, which is very different from say signature, um, Mm -hmm. where, where you used to be or, you know, Lincoln Center versus the public, you know, both, Mm -hmm. both do plays, but they have their own institutional personality. And so Mm -hmm. the plays need to come, um, a great play might not be right for all places. Um, exactly. It- I think that's really important. I think sometimes, you know, we want each theater or each person to be able to support everything. And I think that's just not possible for us as human beings, as like flawed, messy humans who are dealing with um, with an art form that actually is great for for us, for, for people as uh, full human beings. And so it's like, if this one theater isn't doing it properly, maybe this other theater is actually the better fit for it. And, you know, we all have our preferences. There, there, you know, there are certain theaters that I 
really uh, get drawn to because of because of where they land in the landscape, like Planet Horizons, which I've been looking up to my entire career and before it. Um, there are others that maybe I don't feel drawn to myself, but I actually think that they're totally necessary for the health of the entire landscape. Then there's also, you know, the examples of places that just need to need to move forward with time and progress and with what artists actually need. But I think there's something about the landscape of theater and everyone filling their own individual role um, in the best way possible for the artists they're serving. That's really important for me to keep at the center of my mind, especially as I work with multiple organizations and on different scales uh, at any one given time. Well, and let's talk a little bit about that, because I think one of the reasons we wanted to have you on this podcast is not only are you a, a fearless and staunch advocate for playwrights and directors and artists working on new and developing work um, as an artistic leader, but you're also one of America's most influential dramaturgs, I think. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about Beehive Dramaturgy Studio, which you co-founded, um, which is a organization that provides resources and services to both individual artists and writers and companies. Um, and I guess, where, where do I want to start with that? That I, I think <laughs> dramaturgy is often misunderstood. Um, not only by audiences who may not be familiar with the role that dramaturgs play in the process, but often by artists and by early career artists, especially who may not have had access to dramaturgs on a regular mm -hmm. basis yet. Um, and they just don't understand the full range of skills that dramaturgs can bring to the table. So mm -hmm. if I can, you know, ask you to take off your institutional leader hat and put on your <laughs> dramaturg hat, what does dramaturgy mean to you, um, both in your own work and, and how you practice it at Beehive? Yeah, this is a question I've been wrestling with for so long, and I love the question of it almost more than the answer sometimes. But um, in, in starting Beehive with Jeremy Stoller and Molly Marinak, who are my two co-founders who are brilliant, and I love working with them in the way that we do this collective way. Um, you know, even in, in starting Beehive, we were like, okay, part of what we love about dramaturgy is that it can be so expansive, so wide ranging. Um, it has definition and yet it also is so elastic. Um, and so for us, the way that we uh, defined it for Beehive was that it's an exploration of the world of the play, which means both the text itself and also how the text, you know, engages with the world that we live in. Um, and it, by using the word text, we kind of mean any layer of storytelling. It could be it could be the script on page, words on a page, but it could also be movement. It could also be, you know, uh, some other sort of aesthetic or some other theatrical element that the director is is adding into a piece that really lifts up something that's intrinsic to the core storytelling of it. Um, that's how we define it, and honestly, that's how I also define it. I just feel it's a way of connecting premise to execution um, in as deeply explored a way as possible in the way that the generative artist genuinely wants to make happen. When you're going through a play that when you're working on a play or a musical, I think there is, you know, you get into the weeds of so many questions, right? There's so much that the folks on the creating creative team are really thinking through in order to 
put this piece forward for audiences. And I think along the way, something that's really helpful is to have a dramaturg who is a sounding board along the way of this process, someone who has the core goals really close to heart, but who also maybe isn't in every single conversation about the choices that, you know, a scene or a character or a theatrical device might might make or might, you know, be true in, in a uh, in, in the course of a script. I think not knowing some of those things and then being able to receive what the story is, receive the theater of it and speak it back, articulate back questions, articulate back what they see um, is so useful in that sort of space between being artist and audience. Uh, that And that dialogue with the generative artists, I think really can push forward uh, this this accomplishing of what the artist wanted to create to begin with. So for me, it's always fully led by the generative artist. And I mean, directors within that too. It drives me nuts when I'm in a conversation, uh, especially one that's already in production. And the director isn't part of that because there's so, there's so many layers to theater and that's what makes it so beautiful. But to only talk about one of them as if it's complete feels like a disservice to the entire project. Um, so really having these deeper conversations about the elements that feel like they're at the core of the piece and also naming what is coming across as the core of the piece or as uh, something that is confusing um, is just a way to strengthen what the generative artists bring forward and what they are fully you know, uh, responsible for. And so we're just support for that. That's how I see it. I just want to say, I think that is the best <clears throat> evocation of dramaturgy I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> That's why I like it. <laughs> that was really good. And thank you for naming that directors are generative. There's a there's a bias that we fight often mm -hmm. um, in directing communities to be seen uh, as the generative artists that we are. Mm -hmm. um, as, as a director myself, I, the first time I was lucky enough to have a dramaturg with me on the process, it became rapidly essential to have that articulation of the questions that a dramaturg can provide. I think um, theater is an investigative process and the questions are often murky for those creative artists in the place. And there's just a clarifying energy that a dramaturg brings to the way that we come together, to the way that we wrestle with ideas and shape and edit and hone, um, that is really beautiful. So thank you for that work. Um, I wonder if you have thoughts about that process um, in reflection on the year known as 2020 um, and the moment that we're coming through, because I think one of the big conversations the American theater has been having with itself during this pandemic is a very critical examination of how we work together. And I think dramaturgs have a unique vantage point on that question. Um, I think we're wrestling with multiple priorities. I think we're wrestling with health protocols and safety, um, but we're also wrestling with how we, we can create a more just and equitable and anti-racist industry. Um, how we can dismantle white supremacy, how can we can address climate change in the way that we make theater. So I wonder if as a dramaturg, as someone who works in the foundation of our art form, the creation of new work, 
Um, I wonder how you're imagining the return to live performance is going to look like. What what are our rehearsals going to be? What are our spaces going to be? And what are those conversations going to be? Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this so much as I think a lot of us have been because I, you know, Th- this year that we've had so far, and we'll have we'll have a bit more uh, time, um, really gives us uh, the space to reckon with so much that's come to the fore that has always been true, um, and that I think many of us have been talking about for a long time. But finally, there's a, there's a visibility, there's there's a positioning of it at the center of all conversations in a way. Um, that has not been true. That had not been true before. Um, it was very much the squeaky wheel part of what I would be talking about in many conversations. Um, and I'm grateful that we've had this time to do that. I'm also a little wary of of the fact that we've we've had all these conversations without actually being able to do what we do: produce live theater, be part of live theater productions. Um, and I think it's going to take shape differently once we're back in the theater, um, or I hate saying back in the theater, once we move forward into producing live theater um, in whatever new ways that we do that, because right now we're thinking about it and conceiving of it and making all these plans and having all these ambitions without being in the thick of producing a play, which is completely bonkers all the time, as we all know, anyone who's listening to this. Um, that's always so nuts. So how how are these conversations going to weave themselves into what is uh, necessary in order to put a play up? I'm so curious about that. I'm also thinking a lot about how America was like founded on genocide and slavery. And so everything on it, including mainstream theater, the American theater, is deeply infused with that. Our practices, our default conditions, our standards... Um, these are problems that have been going on for a long, long time. And so even with all the conversations happening this year, I'm a little bit like, okay, there are problems in this country that are su- such huge problems. I mean, they're, they're, why, that I, they're why I've started um, Amplifying Activists Together with Ella Rose Cherry and Jay Stoll, because it feels a little bit like its own, or not a little bit, it is its own problem, uh, sort of... Um, to be tackled separately from theater as well. Uh, but then what can we do in the theater world? How do we channel a lot of these thoughts and ideas, a lot of the understanding that so many communities have been oppressed for so long, and that has also had its echoes in theater, especially mainstream theater, because I'm I'm also not saying that there aren't uh, other organizations, other theaters all over the place that have been wrestling with all this. Usually those are not the ones that get the most resources. Those are not the ones that we pay attention to or talk about. And that's a problem. So now in thinking about, you know, who, who we are as, as theater makers and how we integrate a lot of these ideas into our theater making, I'm really curious about how artistic aesthetic is going to play a role. Like I was saying before, that all these theaters and organizations of the landscape fill different roles. I think similarly, I'm curious about how these different theaters and organizations will answer these questions about anti-racism and about, you know, problems that have to do with uh, keeping certain communities out or keeping them marginalized or um, presenting them in very limited ways. Uh, I'm curious how each of these 
organizations will actually infuse their future work with those thoughts in a way that is not just repeating some sort of like uh, fed line about what they're supposed to say about diversity or about anti-racism or any of this. That feels really rigid and unconvincing. I'm more curious how it's going to really be part of the fabric of everything that we do, which I think is very tricky. And I think it'll show up in our rehearsal rooms and our stages and our talkbacks and, you know, our donor functions in, in very different ways. Uh, and I think none of them, probably none of them will be perfect, <laughs> but I do hope that we keep working through the exercise of getting better at it, at developing this muscle of keeping a lot of these priorities in our minds alongside all the struggles of putting a show up. <laughs> that makes sense. It does. And it, I also, I don't know about you. I also find it incredibly exciting. It mm -hmm. feels like there's a, an opportunity here. As you say, of course, the American theater is a product of a broken racist system based in slavery and genocide. Um, but it's also an art form that like activism produces change um, and has the power to transform ideas and thoughts. And so it feels to me like we could, and, and I don't want to be naive, but we are on the precipice of, of actually um, creating some change around the systemic inequities in our field. Um, and I, and I hope that we're all staying committed to that, you know, in, in the work that we do and how we come back to this question. The moment we all stand in a rehearsal room for the first time is an opportunity to do it different. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, you know, I think we have, um, I think we know what we need to do and now we just need to do it. Yes. And I also think, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of conversation about all of this these days. I think some of it, to be honest, does come out of a fear of being called out. A lot of it is performative. There's like a mob mentality on, on kind of all sides of this that has been developing that scares me because I think like a healthy, respectful element layer of dissent feels really necessary for anything to be a full conversation. And in whatever I'm doing, whether it's working on a play, whether it's developing a, a new program, whether it's rethinking a process, I'm like, what is the full conversation around whatever it is we're tackling here? What are the things that we don't want to say? And let's like fully sort of explore that thread so that we're sure we're actually taking everything into consideration here and then making the right choice moving forward. Um, personally, I want to be able to find ways to sensitively and rigorously offer artistic resources to the artists from historically oppressed communities. A lot of the time people ask me questions about, about the, about like purely about the anti-racism aspect of theater, of, of um, the practice of creating theater, um, all of that. And for me, I'm like, oh, this is actually has been part of everything I've been doing forever. It now has more of a name. There's more vocabulary around it. Maybe there's some shared vocabulary around it. Um, but to be honest, I think there's, uh, I think there's been a lot of like off-Broadway slotting in more folks of color into production slots, for example, but not a ton of being able to 
guide them and recalibrate processes and practices for them towards, you know, artistic vision that is new, um, that might need something different with the expertise of someone who is produced so that the artists don't have to take that on because there's so much that they're already doing. But to really, really be in a space where um, we can offer resources forward smartly and, you know, have these artists grow and help the the work grow and help more potential audiences feel genuinely comfortable in coming in and engaging. Those those are sort of the the tangents off of that larger question that I feel really engaged with and that I have a lot of ideas about that I feel like I can finally really dig into because it's now become more of a central uh, priority for our community. Yeah, I, you know, even just hearing you describe what your thoughts are, um, I can't, I can't help but be enthused. I can't. It, it's a future I, I'm excited to see. I'm curious about that. I, that I, really want to move to. You also said in passing something that I just want to come back to a little bit, which is uh, artists ampl- uh, amplifying activists together. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, too many A words. and in, in <laughs> um, uh, Activists amplifying together. Could you talk a little bit about that work and, and how that functions inside your practice? Definitely. Actually, something that I love about it is that it feels sort of separate from what I'm doing. It is totally connected for sure. Um, but what the, the reason why Ella, Jay, and I started this was to really channel what the day in, day out activists are working on. Because I'm actually not a person who I don't consider myself an activist and I don't really think like theater is necessarily activism. It can be, but I think it very rarely actually is. <laughs> um, and for me, I, last June, when the uprising was happening, I felt pulled into a lot of different groups um, in the theater world that wanted to do something about it, that wanted to help, that wanted to have great ideas that are really well-intentioned that would you know, make the world better. And I was like, that's all really nice. But as a person who's been um, sort of tangentially related to the social justice world for a while, just through like personal networks. Um, that felt so that felt a bit too naive for me to be able to move into wholeheartedly. And instead I ended up sort of really kind of bailing and following the activists that I do know and being like, okay, these progressive and radical folks who do this work purely day in and day out without compromising Um, but who have strategies and who understand the history and context of these problems. Um, What are they doing? What do they want us to do? Because I don't think I have a better solution. (laughs) I don't, you know, I'm not better at this than they are. I am great at producing theater and job tricking theater, I think. I don't think I'm um, the person to go to for uh, activism. And so for me, amplifying activists together is a way to channel the incredible, passionate, inspiring work by those folks towards a larger group of people. That's the part that I felt like, okay, I usually am gathering people towards artistic events or conversations, that sort of thing. Now, in this moment, why don't we build on the defund NYPD movement that was really becoming super mainstream in June um, and get a lot of the theater folks, a lot of my friends, a lot of you know, my former collaborators, a lot of just people in the industry who I love, get them all on a Zoom screen and channel 
what these activists are saying so that instead of scrambling and trying to, you know, make my way through a ton of messaging and a ton of advice and a ton of, uh, uh, you know, statements from different places. Why don't we follow the people who know best and just do that? <laughs> um, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. It's genuinely just amplifying what is already there and giving much more volume to the folks who are doing this really incredible work because, and this is where the connection to the theater world really comes in, because a lot of our artists, a lot of the people in New York, amplifying activists together is, is um, New York centered. But so a lot of our artists here are struggling for so many reasons that could actually be answered by the government and in other places are answered by the government. And so that feels like a huge, that's a huge piece that I always want to acknowledge that, you know, I, I was building a new residency at Signature um, when I was there. And a big, a big part of that was trying to get health insurance as part of the slate of offerings that we'd be offering to this artist. And that was, I was, I was happy to do that, but I was also pretty frustrated that I had to spend my energy as an artistic staff member <laughs> arguing for the health insurance of a person who lives in America. Like that should just be a thing that is solved otherwise. Um, right. And to spend my energy on that meant that I, that's also energy I couldn't spend on some artistic idea that I could have actually embedded into the program. And so that's a problem that I think needs to be addressed in different ways. And I think it's very connected to the theater world. And I think it's separate from the theater world. And that's, that's for me, what Amplifying Activists Together is. It's a way to do that in a sustainable weekly way where you just dedicate one hour, Fridays one to two, to appearing on the Zoom. And then you get a step-by-step -step guide that is literally just messaging from these progressive and radical activists to amplify what they need for their strategies. Well, and it really seems to foreground the idea of the artist as an engaged citizen. Um, the mm -hmm. idea that we have a we have a role to play in in the civil civic discourse. Um, Definitely, and also uh, the artist as worker. Like the artist is a worker. We are all workers, even if we see our work as, you know, ideally, hopefully, <laughs> really beautiful and um, something we genuinely want to dig into every day but at the same time if this is what we're doing professionally we need the support that any worker in america needs and that many workers in america do not have so it feels like there's a solidarity there that we can build on rather than avoiding it or um or siloing ourselves away from it because that again doesn't feel like the full conversation of what's going on and it also seems like that you have at Beehive a sort of I don't know first cousin of of this work, <laughs> um, the, because you've partnered with a number of artists and activists to create um, anti capitalism for artists, which is a seems to be uh, a series dedicated to raising the class consciousness of artists of all kinds, um, in order to transform living conditions for art workers and and for people of the world. And, you know, I think a lot of us at the Drama League feel like um, class is the often mm -hmm. overlooked root of a lot of the systemic inequities we see in the world and in our field. Um, so I'm very excited about it. We are recording this podcast in mid March and I and there are events this week, um, so they will have passed by the time people hear this conversation. But I'd love if you could tell us more about that initiative and and if there are ways that artists or audiences could get involved. 
Absolutely. First of all, I love that you're saying that the JAMA League talks about class a lot because I do feel like that's something that is usually not part of the conversation whatsoever. And that's something that drove me nuts last summer. I was going through a lot last summer <laughs> when everything was going on um, in, in sort of grappling with this, with a the theater community. And then also uh, my partner is part of the social justice world. And so I would hear like during his Zoom conversations and everything, how they were tackling it. And just the, the differences between the two were very telling in a lot of different ways. Um, for me, the omission of class as part of a lot of these conversations about anti-racism is really destructive and, again, not a complete conversation. And so for me, Chris Myers, the actor who um, I think I first saw in an Octoroon, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins in Octoroon, which was absolutely brilliant, and he's an acting genius, um, Chris Myers uh, created this eight-week curriculum about capitalism and anti-capitalism. And he offered it to, I think like his, his Facebook friends, I think was how it originally started. And I took that because I was like, yes, anti-capitalism feels like what I want to spend this time working on because I mean, I, I think all of us will always need to learn more about anti-racism, but that was happening at like this one-on-one level that I felt um, wasn't serving me. I wanted to keep growing and keep bringing new ideas into what I was wrestling with. And that felt like anti-capitalism would do that. So I took this eight week cohort. It was absolutely mind blowing. Anyone who's listening to this, if Chris Myers is still offering this, you should absolutely take it. <laughs> it is incredible and so needed. And after I took that, I reached out to Chris and was like, what else might you want to do towards this? Because that information and the way that we engaged around those concepts and uh, related them to our own lives and worlds and work felt absolutely necessary for so many more people to be able to to do. So that's where anti-capitalism for artists comes in. Chris was working on what his next steps would be, and Beehive wanted to support that because anti-capitalism -cap itself feels like a dramaturgical context for everything that we engage with in this world. It, it has to do with the dynamics among all of us. It has to do with like how a lot of our theater is funded. It has to do with just everything that goes into any aspect of our lives as theater makers, because it is part of everything as humans in general, living in America, living in this world in general. Um, and so we really wanted to offer forward a way to engage with that, to understand it more, to understand it beyond the like shallow, um, like top layers of what capitalism is and why it may not serve us as well as we may be thinking. Um, and then also move into alternatives and what artists can do specifically um, in, in, in sort of combating it or, or moving away from it or finding ways to uh, develop new ways forward. And so Chris, so it's, it's, it's Chris and a group of artist organizers who are incredible, so inspiring, so passionate and so knowledgeable about all of this. And anti-capitalism for artists will be basically this um, continuing education community um, where there's a lot of offerings towards, uh, towards these ideas and concepts so that people can develop more of an ease around dialoguing about all of this stuff so that it enters into every conversation beyond that. And Beehive's... Um, you know, involvement with this is really to support it. We, we, we had a bit of money and we were like, what can we 
um, what can we do with this that will go the farthest? Uh, because we're a small organization and we there are things that we can do and things we can't do. And what we're always trying to do is find what is the gap in on the theater landscape that is not filled, that can't be filled by larger organizations or by producing companies. This felt like one of those things that we could really support and push forward. And so we put that towards anti-capitalism for artists. And I've just been sort of working with Chris to develop this program. And this weekend, yes, is a launch weekend of a couple different events that sound absolutely amazing. <laughs> I will be there. I'm not sure if they're available online afterwards, but I would encourage anyone who's listening to this to check anticapitalismforartists.com um, and see what's up at the point when you're listening to this, because the idea is that it will continue for as long as it feels right to do. Um and to just offer forward more context for all of us as artists, but also as just human beings in America. Well, and thank you to Chris. Uh, shout out to Chris. And thanks to you for supporting this work. I think, you know, this is a podcast that uses the lens of of directing. And mm-hmm. we we feel class inequity very deeply in the way that directing is practiced in this country. And we know there are, and you know, in a capitalist society where um, the arts are um, pervasively under-resourced, underfunded, and undervalued, we are um, struggling to allow arts participation. Um, and the only way that directors can really participate is if they um, are not intersected by class, if they mm-hmm. come with personal wealth. And so we've done a lot of work on this podcast about that and we and in our own work. And it, it's just really great to see Chris uh, lift this up and for Beehive to support it. So thank you for that work. Um, of so we're coming close to the end of our time together. So I thought I might switch to some more fun conversations. <laughs> not, not that talking about systemic inequality isn't fun. Um, <clears throat> but um, I, I'd love to come to a question. We ask a lot of people in this podcast to talk about your artistic bucket list. You know, when I look at your career and the incredible writers and actors and directors that you have worked with, um, you know, I'm, I'm in awe of what you've achieved. But I wonder if there are artists you haven't worked with who you would like, who's on your dream list to collaborate with and to, and to bring into community. Ooh, I love this question. Um, As, as someone who works almost primarily and now primarily (laughs) in new, new plays and new musicals, um, I feel like that's something I was sort of like in the closet about before Playwrights Horizons. And now I can just say, which is, remains hilarious to me. Um, but <laughs> for, for me, I, you know, I, I'm always sort of interested in what folks are writing anew, whether that's someone who's an early career writer who I just don't know yet, or if it's someone that I, that I do know and who's moving into sort of like another phase of their writing career, you know, someone who's creating theater that's really brimming with intention and reimagining and multiple lenses and critical thinking and experimentation, that stuff will always sort of grab me and, and sort of take up (laughs) all of my energy in in like the best way possible and figuring out, okay, what does this need? And how can I, how can I frame it and hold it in a way that resonates best for this artist who is creating it, who has lived it, who has been um, living with it for so long Um, 
So I guess for me, when I think of bucket list, it's it's less about who exactly that person is, because I feel like I don't always know in the moment if that comes later on and currently includes all the people I've worked with before and all the projects that I'm in development with. But it's especially just finding new new ways of holding those projects. That feels really like what my job is, is to really uh, find ways to reshape maybe what the process might be towards production and also reshape how audiences might find it. Because I think some of these things we think of in really traditional ways that feel like they're stuck, like like that, like that is the best way to do it. And therefore we can't detract when really there are problems with all of these things, you know, like we, everything is risky. And so my take on that is really why not be really smart about a different plan forward, still have some risk in there, but, uh, attract and serve different sorts of people, different approaches towards theater making. Um, And so I'm really, what I, like you were saying before that you're excited about what could come next. And I I genuinely really am too, especially in this position as associate artistic director at Playwrights Horizons. I feel like that combined with the opportunity that this moment gives us, I mean, it's a, it's a moment of such Ugh, like such pain um, and fear and conflict this this whole past year, right? But I guess I guess I tend to try to see bad situations as opportunities as much as I can. Um, and now that the mainstream is reconsidering how things get done or how they're even perceived to begin with, I feel like that creates this opening that I'm so excited to like jump into, knowing that you know finances will probably be really hard in the next year and. Even just psychologically, I'm curious about how people will feel about gathering again. I'm a person who's been <laughs> largely hiding <laughs> during this entire time rather than going outside much at all um, in, in fear of, you know, getting COVID or also having it and unknowingly spreading it to someone who deals with it very poorly. Um, and so I'm curious what's going to be like to do this thing that I usually that usually tops my list, you know, sitting in a, in a theater, breathing next to a lot of other humans, taking in um, an intentionally crafted story by visionary folks. Um, how is that going to feel? And how do we, how do we consider that when we're also considering these new practices and when we're also considering what to program and when we're also considering how we can support these artists in a more holistic way moving forward rather than just project to project. Um, so yeah, I feel like I'm sort of cheating this question, but to be honest, I, I get so excited about artists. And then the thing that I feel like I can do is build a process that speaks to the piece and the person who created it. Uh, you know, I think that's a beautiful answer. And I, you know, to the to the question of how it will feel to come back. And I, I too have wrestled with sort of like, what, what are my fears around that moment? Um, But I'll just, you know, I'll share with you personally. um, We're recording this on March 15th and earlier this week, um, the Park Avenue Armory announced and put on sale tickets for Bilty Jones new piece. Mm -hmm. And my subconscious leap to the website to try to buy tickets um, was unlike anything I'd ever, I, I wanted to be in the theater so badly. I wanted, um, 
and and I know it will be socially distanced and I know I will wear a mask and I know all of those things and still I crave it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I think it's I think when we get there, it's going to feel wonderful. I I I think we're all going to be very excited and and we're not far away from that moment. I hope I hope we're not. Yeah, um, it finally feels like we can we can see it in the distance. You know, like it's it exists. There was a while when I was like, sure, yeah, that's going to happen, but to be honest, I, it, it didn't feel totally real. Um, but now it feels like it's there. And I'm also curious how it'll sharpen what theater is for us. I mean, we've spent this past year watching things on screens and um, trying to innovate different ways of feeling theater. And I'm just in awe of so many artists who put work forward. And at the same time, I'm like, oh my God, I missed the like energy exchange and just sitting with another human being whether or not I know them and experiencing a play there's something so special about that that I that I will value more I think after all of this because before I was I mean I've been obsessed with seeing seeing theater since I was a kid I would like sneak into the city and see shows and spend my (laughs) lunch money on like train fare and volunteer usher for some show or whatever like I that's a thing that I've always loved but you know I think like a lot of us in the theater who have the privilege of seeing so much of it it's also exhausting at times and 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 now I think about that I'm just like oh my god what I would give to just sit in a theater and watch like anything (laughs) but then (laughs) I also think forward to being like oh but I wonder if now that we sort of are reminded of how unique and beautiful and special that is is that going to is that going to sharpen what we actually see on stage and like how we approach theater and what we take risks on honestly because there's some stuff that we could watch on tv and it's great like I've, I've watched more you know like movies and tv this past year than I have in my entire life because I've never had time like this at night <laughs> um and there's some great storytelling there like some really really good stuff so how do we do how do we offer forward what theater can do in like the best way possible that's that's like making the most of what theater specifically is and i think that is something i'm so curious about seeing um play out in in the in the after times me too that feels like a great place for us to leave this conversation until i can be in a room with you hopefully at playwrights yes. horizons again soon <laughs> natasha thank you so much for being here thank you so much this is so wonderful take care everyone who's listening thanks bye-bye Thanks for listening to today's episode of Talking Direction. Join us every week by subscribing while you're here. Also, let us know what you think. You can follow us and engage with us directly on all social media platforms with the handle at DramaLink. Talking Direction is a project of the DramaLink of New York, America's only not-for-profit lifelong home for stage directors and the audiences who treasure their work on stage and films on television and across the internet. During the pandemic, We're providing essential services to help theater folk and their families who are suffering from economic and health struggles due to COVID-19. If you'd like to join us in this effort, visit dramaleague.org and click donate or become a member. We'd love to have you a part of our Drama League family. Thank you for listening. Until next time. (music) 